0: morning church family and I want to say thank you again to everyone who helped uh, serve at Fall Fest this last Wednesday night. It was great to see so many of you there. It was a sweet night and let me just say if you were invited uh, by somebody last Wednesday and maybe this is your first Sunday with us this morning, a special welcome to you. We're really glad that you're here worshiping Jesus and just pray uh, from the bottom of my heart that you are encouraged today uh, through God's word. That God even guides you to love him in new and better, deeper ways um, today through this message. So we're grateful for that. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, so go ahead and grab your Bible and uh, make your way there. And again, if you are a guest, just invite you to stick six with us. I say that every so often, to stick six weeks so that we can get to know you and you can get to know us and uh, we can interact well together. And I would just say too, uh, as we look at God's word, this is what leads us as a church. This is what guides us. Uh, Each week we're looking at a certain passage and walking through it. So you will need a Bible each week you're with us, or even as you go to small groups. So if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we have one in the Welcome Center that you can grab as a gift. It's free. Take that with you. love for you to be able to read God's Word and treasure it as much as we do. And if you've been interacting with friends or coworkers that don't know Jesus and you've been sharing the gospel with them, church family, take one of those Bibles and give it to them as a gift so they can read it and know what God would have to say to them. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to unpack another portion from 1 Peter about the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We'll start in verse 8 of chapter 3. This is what God's Word says. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to, to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from, doing, from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And the ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Pray with me this morning. Merciful Lord, you are our comforter and our teacher. And Lord, we ask today that you would increase in us a desire for you and for your word. Strengthen uh, the hearts of those who hope in you by enabling us to understand the depths of your word and the beauty of your promises. Lord, would you be so kind to give us eyes of faith to believe in you and feet of action to live according to your promises and your word. Let me give you just a moment of silence now to pray to God to ask that he would help you to understand his word, and apply it to your life. Would you pray and ask him to do that now? Lord Jesus, as we read this passage, it's a reminder that you desire for us to love the life you have given us, And to see good days. So Lord, help us to hear, to understand, and to apply your word this morning. To the glory of your name and to our good. Amen. Amen. Well, there's a PR firm, uh, Weber Shandwick, that does a survey every year. And as a public relations firm, they're always evaluating what's going on in our culture and our nation. And they interview in America every year the civility of Americans how we get along well, whether there's more conflict or less conflict, how we interact politely or, or rudely. And so this survey that they do through multiple people all across our nation it was fascinating. You're not going to be surprised, but there are several things that are fascinating with it. That incivility is up. It's, it's higher than it's ever been in any of their surveys that they've done in the past, that we are just not getting along well together, that we're we're more rude and we're more abrasive and we're more harsh than we have ever been as a nation. Now, in this survey, one of the things it talks about is where do you feel this incivili- incivility? Where do you see it? And it's interesting because it goes across the board. In, in there, it said, In my community, I feel it. Whenever I'm in my neighborhood or even commuting from one place to the next, like in my community, in my neighborhood, I feel the incivility, I feel the tension. And then another one they said is kind of second place was in my workplace. I feel it in my workplace that there's a tension there, that there's incivility even within my workplace. And then the third one was while I'm out shopping, when I'm at the grocery store or I'm at the mall. Which if you start to add those up, basically that's everywhere, right? I mean, my community, where I work, where I go shop, every one of those places they're saying that they feel this tension of incivility. Now the thing that's interesting to me about this As one of the questions they had in there for people to answer that are doing the survey is, are you always polite and civil? And of the people they interviewed, 94% of those people said, of course. Of course. This incivility isn't my problem, isn't my issue, it's everybody else. I am always polite. I am always kind, right? And the reason why I tell you that this morning is because It is easy for us as Christians, as followers of God, to read passages like this and say, well, this applies to everybody else. This doesn't apply to me. I don't need to be reminded of these things. Like There are other people that need to be more focused on unity. There's other people that need to have sympathy or brotherly love or a tender heart. And so we're kind of like that 94% of people be like, well, I'm always living out these things. And what I want us to do is just to pause and to realize that we need to search our own hearts and our own lives to live these things out. This is not a sermon for your friend or your wife or somebody else. This is a sermon for all of us. And that's how he starts in verse 8. Finally, all of you. So it doesn't matter who you are or where you are or what your age is, like this is for you if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you claim that he is my Lord and my Redeemer and my Savior, this is written for you. So may we listen to what God would say to us. The way I want to divide this up is he's going to tell us in verse 8, these are qualities. Qualities of believers. This is what should be in us internally. This is what should be within our souls and our hearts. And then he's going to talk about activities. So not just internals, but externals. How we live out this world. Live out these truths in this world. And then he's going to talk about the blessings we get as we live these things out. So first, let's slowly unpack the qualities and activities of those who hope in the living Christ. Those who hope in the living Christ. Now, in verse 8, when he says all of you, yes, that does include all of us, but I think what he's doing is he's broadening it so that we all realize the last couple weeks he's looked very specifically at certain things, and he's challenged us both in how we live in our marriages and reflect the gospel. He challenged us in our workplace and how we respond, whether we're a boss or whether we're somebody working underneath somebody else, how we respond in those ways. He even talked about our sexual ethics. How we should live and reflect purity because God has called us to live in that way. And so he's been extremely practical. And he sits specifically on certain people. But now he's saying, everybody, everybody listen up. If you claim Christ, this should be within you. This is a quality you should have. And he starts with unity. starts with the unity of mind. Now, let's just be honest real quick here. State the obvious first. The fact that he has to say that we need to have unity of mind states the, the reality. This is something that does not come naturally to, naturally to us. We do not naturally have unity of mind. We are naturally diverse. We are naturally isolated. We're naturally individualistic in our thoughts. And it's saying here we need to have a unity of mind. And the people in the the church that Peter writes this to, they were very diverse like we're diverse. In the sense that different ages, different races, different nations, different people. And he's saying we need to rally and be unified. The church is a diverse group of people who are unified because our love for Jesus Christ outweighs our differences. The things that would divide us doesn't because we're trusting in Jesus. Now, I know even when I say that, that can be a very broad term. What, what do you mean, you know, rallying around Jesus? How do we be unified around that? If you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, these verses will be on the screen, but 22 through 24, it's interesting I'm not going to be able to unpack all of this. I encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast online or hop on our website. But I want, to, I want you to notice one thing with this. First, he started, he's talking about as we as believers are saved, as Christ has redeemed us. It says, having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, you've been saved, you've been redeemed, you've been rescued. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Listen to this. Through the living and abiding Word of God. Jesus saves us through the understanding and hearing His Word and responding to it. Through the living and abiding Word of God. What is it that unifies us in mind as a church? It's the Word of God that unifies us. This is what I mean when I say let's be unified around Jesus. We come back to his word and we let that define our, our, our will and our way as a church and as, us as individuals. This is what we do. We go to God's word. And then the next two verses are beautiful. Notice this. Verses 24 and 25. All flesh is like grass and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever, forever. So don't miss this. Don't miss this. What unifies us is not politics, us all agreeing on every single political view. What unifies us is not our hobbies of recreation. It's easy to say, well, I have this hobby, they have this hobby, let's unify around that. That is not what God's word says unifies us in our minds. It's not our economic status, when we all have the same amount of money and we all enjoy doing the same things, that's what unifies us. That's not what unifies us. Why? Because every one of those things fade and wither, just like the grass and the flower. But there is one thing that remains. It is the Word of God from generation to generation. It remains. And so we as a church... We, as followers of Christ, found our lives, find our lives based on this. This is what unifies us. This is what we wrap our mind around because we know it goes far beyond us. It's centered on Christ and His Word. Now, don't get the wrong idea when I say that we're just founded on on God's Word and we think, well, great, that's just a lot of like catechisms and theological truths, and I'm just going to hold on to these kind of sterile truths, if I hold on to those, then, then that's what it means to be unified. No, we do hold on to theological truths that are found and based in the Word of God, 100%. But it's not some cold, sterile, these are these truths and this is it and like We're, we don't care about anything else. No, this theological truth and a love for God's Word leads us to love others. You cannot love studying about God and not love the people of God. You can't do it. And that's why the next quality that's mentioned for a believer is that we have sympathy. And that we have brotherly love. That we have a tender heart. That we have a humble mind. These are all the qualities of those of us who follow Christ. And so yes, be unified around God's word. Know it, believe it, hold to those creeds, hold to those theological truths. Let those truths drive you to have sympathy for others. Sympathy is a very unique word. It's a great word. I'm glad he chose it. It means a a sense of feeling what others feel as you walk alongside them. As you walk alongside them and you do life together, because you're unified around Christ and his word. This is what it means. That when somebody carries a deep wound or a burden in their heart, that you would come alongside them and through prayer, you would help bear that burden. Through maybe t- intentional ways of providing financially for them or caring for them. Even being a friend in those harder times. This is what sympathy looks like. You see, Believers, I want to make this personal to you today because we can read this and think, well, this doesn't really apply to me. This applies to everybody else. No, this applies to all of us as followers of Jesus. When we talk about sympathy right here, I want you to think about our church. Just, we'll start here. We can go broader, but just start here. There are marriages in this church that are hurting right now. There are parents that are hurting right now. There are kids who are hurting right now. Oh, that we would come alongside other brothers and sisters in Christ and have sympathy to bear the load of what they carry. This is not an option. This isn't well, if I want it or I don't want it. No, this is a quality of a believer in Christ. That we would have sympathy for one another. Oh, that we, we as a church would be able to fulfill the words of Romans chapter 12, verse 15, rejoicing with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. This is what it looks like to have sympathy. And once again, this is for followers of Christ. Because this is exactly how Christ lived. Romans chapter 4, verse 15. It says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, our high priest, sympathizes with us in our weaknesses and our struggles and our temptations, and yet he is without sin. He gets it. Jesus did not have to hassle with you nor with me. But in sympathy, he stepped down into our sin-stained world to sympathize with us. He walks the steps of our pain so that he can sympathize with us. And then he looks at his followers and says, If you're going to claim to follow me, then you're going to need to sympathize with others. You're going to need to care about others. And it moves on in verse 8 to the next quality of a brotherly love. This is how we love sympathetically, it's a brotherly love. Which, this is the the word in in Greek, which is is written in Philadelphia, right? Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. But let me be clear, God's word is not calling us to live like Philadelphia. That city, though it's the city of brotherly love, there's not a whole lot of brotherly love up there sometimes, right? I just heard yesterday that the baseball team, the Phillies up there, uh, they are some rough fans at some times, some harsh fans. And so when they were playing the Diamondbacks in the last series... Uh, when the games were in Arizona, Phillies fans got online and they bought up all the tickets that they could in Arizona so that Arizona fans could not come to the game, even though the Phillies fans weren't even going. <laughs> they are just buying the tickets so the other fans couldn't come to the games. That's not the kind of love that God's word is calling us to love and a brotherly love, right? This kind of brotherly love that's talking about here is like a, a, a family love, a familial love, love that doesn't just bail when things get hard but a love that is committed and stays. That's why, it's it's passages like this that that I say, church family, and call you church family. Because this is how God's word describes the quality of we as a church should have. That we would have this familiar love, but a familiar love that goes much deeper than blood. You see, the family we have here lasts for as long as our life lasts, but the The relationship we have with other believers, that is for all of eternity. That is worth investing in. It should be a deeper, wider, broader love than even we have for our own biological family. And this is how God chooses to describe the way that we should love one another. And I get that this totally flies in the face of our individualistic culture where we rarely, if ever, value the community over ourselves. We're always thinking, what's comfortable for me? How easy it is for me? Like, we're just, that's just how we think. That's how we've been driven as a culture. It's very individualistic. But God's word has called us to think like a community, to care about others, to not just love yourself, but to love the Lord. And more than that, allow that love for the Lord to drive you to love others. This is the kind of love that we should have for one another. And let me be clear, this term of family and, and loving each other like a family, this brotherly love, if we even look at our own families, our own personal families aren't perfect, right? We all have maybe a few crazy aunts or uncles. And as a church family, we're going to have some crazy aunts and uncles that are just going to be a part of our community, right? It's just going to happen. We're going to have leaders that, that make mistakes. Even within the church, we're going to have leaders that fail us and things that we struggle with and faltering like that's just a part of family right if we if we struggle with it in a family of five how much more in a family of 500 are we going to struggle with these things right so I'm not here saying well come to the church because it's a perfect family we all get along perfectly we're all unified no we're not perfect our leadership is not perfect but our God in heaven is perfect and we rally around him because he is a good and perfect God he is the one that drives this love deep into our heart, and then spreads it out in our church. Holy, we live out this quality of brotherly love. The next quality is with a tender heart. With a tender heart. Now, depending on your translation of Bible you use, sometimes it's translated compassion. That we would have compassion in our heart. I hope. I hope that you see how different this is from the world. See, we live in a world that is full of angry, harsh, brash, sarcastic, accusatory, critical speech. It is everywhere. Just look at the headlines. Get on social media. It's there. But God says, not with my people. My people don't respond in that way. My people aren't gonna be harsh and critical and sarcastic to everybody. That's not how my people work. My people come from a tender heart. And God says from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if you look at your life and people define you as sarcastic and critical and you're always putting other people down, it's because that's what's in your heart. And let's be honest, we need a new heart, and that's the good news of the living hope of Jesus. He says that we all have a heart of stone. As Christ saves us and sanctifies us. He removes that heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh that beats for His glory and for the good of others. This is the quality we should have, a tender heart before the Lord. He transforms us from the inside out. This leads us to the next trait, a humble mind. A humble mind. Once again, see how contrary this is to the world. We as Christians, people that are following Christ, it looks different for us. See, we live in a world that is advanced at all costs. Get all you can, while you can, while sitting on your can. Like that's kind of the motto of the American dream, right? But God's word tells us to be humble, that we would consider others as more important than ourselves. And as C.S. Lewis said, it. that's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That you would allow your mind to consider others and love others. And to care about what other people are going through. These are qualities that God has deemed for his people. If you're going to claim Christ, then reflect Christ. Now I know that when some of us hear this, if we're just honest, we think, man, that sounds like a hassle. Gosh, I don't want to do that. I mean, that's a lot of sacrifice and that's a lot of time. Because listen to this you cannot do these things in verse 8 unless you're a part of a community. You can't. You can't have unity of mind if you're by yourself. There's no one to have unity with, it's just one. You can't express sympathy or brotherly love or a tender heart or a humble mind when you're divorced from community. And a lot of times we hear things like this, and we're like, man, this is just so, such a hassle. This is so hard. And yet, it's what our hearts long for. We long to have a community like this. And I, and I hear it all the time. I've hear it, heard it from people at this church and other churches that I've worked at, where people are like, I just really wish I had community. I really wish I could do life with people. I wish people really cared about me. And then they don't do anything to try to advance that on their side. This is a two-lane road. Community is not a one-way street. People will come their direction. You have to come as well. It is a two lane road. And and people will will struggle with that and say, well, I just really want this community. But man, it's such a hassle. I got to give up like a night of the week and go to a small group. And let me just be honest. As pastors, I'm sure you feel this way. If you don't, then I guess you can judge your pastors. But this week I'm talking to one of our staff. We're just talking about the reality of this struggle of fighting for community. And we're talking about small group, and we're like, man, small group's just hard to go to sometimes. <laughs> like, I've got football practice on Monday night, and baseball practice on Tuesday night, and then things on the weekends, and then I've got small group that I've got to fit on there on Wednesday. And I look around, and I'm like, my whole schedule is booked, and like, I'm just really tempted to like, just miss out on small group. And he's responding the same way, and he's like, yeah, my wife and I feel the same way. Like, there's a temptation for us not to do this. And as we're talking and having a dialogue about this, it hits me. I'm like, this is the only area in life that I feel this way. Whenever there's something spiritual, there's something church related, then I'm like, I'm just so tired. I just don't know if I want to go. I, I can't remember, maybe there's a time, I can't remember where I've ever had like a tea time set to go play golf and then thought, gosh, I just don't know if I have the energy or strength to like go play golf today. Like I just don't think that way. Why is it that the only time that we're tempted to cut things are the things that our heart needs most? we're longing for this community, we're longing for this, this atmosphere, and, and Jesus has promised us not just eternal life, but abundant life. But then we dam up all these areas in our life where God desires for the, the streams of abundant life to flow into our life. We dam them up, and then we're like, why are we so thirsty? And why are we so tired? Gosh, I long for community. Why does nobody care about me? Why does nobody care what's going on in my life? And so we start to isolate more and more and more. And then we turn around, we're like, and here I am alone. It's not God's design. God's Word is saying these are qualities of believers, and it is meant to be lived out in community. And yes, that takes sacrifice. And yes, it's a hassle at times. But if we don't sacrifice and we don't work through this hassle, then we will never have it. We'll never have it. And we realize this to be true in other areas of our lives. We can say, I really want to exercise and build great muscles, but gosh, I don't want to, ex- I don't want to hassle with like, going to work out gosh, I don't want to hassle with having to eat veggies and eat healthier. I just want the muscles. Like, I just want all that stuff. It doesn't work that way. And it doesn't work that way with community either. We can't say, I don't want to put in anything, but I want to get out everything. We reap what we sow. So church family, just look at the qualities that God has called us to do and realize that it's meant to be lived out in deep, rich community. And fight for that because it is a spiritual battle that we're warring against. Now it's just not qualities that God gives. But you see in verse 9, there's activities. See, in verse 8, these are internal qualities that God desires for us to have, but it doesn't end with us. It goes exterior. And He mentions two things in verse 9. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Bless. So what are the two activities that follow these qualities? Don't retaliate, but bless. Now, why do you think he picked these things? Well, remember, remember the, the setting of this time, the people he's writing to? The church is, is young. They're being persecuted. Rome has kind of scattered them out because of the persecution all across. This. So, like They are just scattered, weary people who are kind of being isolated from society and they feel like people don't understand them. Christians are really struggling with this. And he says, you know what? As people speak evil of you, and they don't understand why you live the way you live, don't respond back with evil. When they speak, don't revile in return. Don't do that. Don't return evil for evil. That's the tactic of the world. That's not what God has called us to do. But that's our temptation. We sit there and we think, well, they, they poured poison into the, the well of society with their hate. I'm going to pour it right back. But I didn't do it first. They did it. And so as they poured this hate on me and they reviled me, then I'm just doing what they did. That doesn't fix the problem. That doesn't transform a culture. All you're doing is making it worse. And God's word is calling us to look different. You see, people at that time were spoken harshly about, and Peter's saying, don't respond to them the way they're responding to you. And we have the same temptation today as Christians. Where you get on social media and you see people reviling you or speaking evil about you, and our first response is, you know what we do? Let's blast them right back. Let me just write some things on there and speak ill of them. That does not fix the problem. All you're doing is pouring, pouring poison in there as they are. God has called us to do different, to live differently. Now, most of us can hear that first point okay, don't revile when I'm reviled. And through our own energy, self-discipline, we're thinking, this week I can do that. I can do that. Somebody speaks bad of me at work, just going to shove it deep down, not respond back. I can do that. I'm not going to revile as I'm reviled. Or as the fifth person cuts me off in traffic this week, instead of, You know, giving them a certain finger, I'm going to give them the thumb and give them a thumbs up, right? Like, good job for you. Like, that's going to be ours. I can, I can do that in my own self-will and my own discipline. We can do that part. At least we think we can. But then it says, not just that we don't revile when we're reviled. God takes the next level, and He says, bless that person. What? I gotta bless this person that I don't like? All right, once again, let's make this personal. I want you to think about the person in your mind right now that you don't like. I'm not gonna say hate, you don't wanna use that word. Let's just say the person you don't like, get a picture of their face right now. Think about not reviling them, but think about how you could bless them. Could you pray for them the same blessings that you're praying for your own life? Could you speak a kind word, not out of sarcasm? but out of a genuine heart and love for them. And let's just be honest, when I say that and you think about that person, you think about even trying to speak those words, <clears throat> like it gets, it gets caught up in your throat. Like, oh, I can't pray that prayer. <laughs> I cannot speak those words. And it's because this is a supernatural response. You might have the self-discipline not to respond evil with evil, but we need something deeper than that. If we're going to change a culture, if we're going to be a light in a dark world, we need to be able to bless those who are persecuting us and slandering us. And this is what God's word is calling us to do, that we would be different than the world. And it even tells us, for this reason you were called. To this you were called. Church, we were called to this, to bless others who are reviling us. We're called to it. It's a part of following Jesus. This is what Peter is trying to get us to see. And all Peter is doing is he's ripping from the words of Christ. In Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And Jesus has told us to do that. This is how Jesus calls us to live. I was watching um, an interview just this last week. This uh, actor, Jeremy Pevin, not a famous actor, but some of you may know him. Uh, he's doing this podcast, and he's interviewing uh, Saquon Barkley, which is an NFL uh, uh, running back. And in this interview, they come up with uh, talking about forgiveness. I don't know how they exactly got there, but they're talking about it. Saquon Barkley's like, yeah, somebody wrongs me, done with them. I just cut them off. They cut me, I cut them off completely. And they're, whole, they're talking about this whole thing of just basically what Peter's talking about, reviling those who revile you, right? And it's interesting, Jeremy Pevin said, man, the person that I've seen that has reflected forgiveness and compassion more than anybody else is Mike Tyson. And I kind of laugh. I do when I hear that. I'm like, what? Mike Tyson? The only thing I knew is growing up, I played Mike Tyson's Punch-Out on Nintendo and every grown man feared Mike Tyson. You didn't want to get in the ring with him, right? Like, that's, that's not what you do. And in this interview, as they're talking about this, it pans over, and there's Mike Tyson sitting in this seat about to take part in this interview. And Saquon Barkley starts to tell us things. No, 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 no man. Somebody comes against me and wrongs me like I am done with them. And Mike Tyson responds and says, man, then the devil wins. And Barkley's kind of like, What? No, 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 no. And he's like, no, 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 you need to listen. Mike Tyson said, if you are not the bigger man that forgives, then they're not your enemy. They're your master. Because they control your emotions and they control your thoughts. They've changed you, they are your master. Now, I'm not here to make the case that Mike Tyson's a believer. I don't even know. But I am here to make the case that what he said is true in the sense that whoever your master is, that's the one who you'll follow. Whoever your master is, that's the one you're gonna obey. That's the one you're gonna allow to shape your emotions and to shape your actions. And he looks and he says, Your enemy is shaping your emotions, shaping your activity, so he's your master. And Peter's like, No, 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 our master is Jesus. He is the one that shapes our emotions, he's the one that shapes our actions. For he's our master. And it's because he has reflected all of this. All of this. Think about this. If Jesus would have come to, to, from heaven to earth and he would have responded exactly like the world responded, we would not be talking about him here this morning. If when people spit on Jesus, Jesus stood up and spit on them back, we wouldn't be talking about him. If Jesus was being beaten by the Roman soldiers, he stood up and he's like, forget you, I'll see you in hell one day. That's how Jesus responded. Or if Jesus, hanging on the cross, looks out and as they cursed him, he cursed them back for their sins. We wouldn't be talking about Jesus. We wouldn't be worshiping Jesus. But that's not what he did. Jesus extended the greatest blessing on the cross as he hung there for our sins and our place. Instead of of reviling as people were reviling him, he speaks back blessing. Even to the criminal on the other side of the cross that mocked him at first, he offers him salvation. He looks at the crowd that's cursing him, and he says, Father, forgive them. So when Jesus looks at us and and, and his word tells us, this is how I want you to live, it's not just, okay, well, maybe I want to do this, maybe I don't. No, we look at Jesus. And if we're going to claim the name of Christian, a follower of Christ, then this is how we live. This is who we reflect. The greatest blessing we saw come from Jesus as he hung on the cross for us. And from his death on the cross comes the greatest blessings. And that's where I want us to finish today. The blessings that we find in Christ, the blessings of those who hope in the living Christ. Don't miss the end of verse 9. We were called to this. We were called to live in this way, to have these qualities, to have these activities. Why? That you may obtain a blessing. And then in verse 10, he's going to switch to actually quoting the Old Testament. Proverbs 34. Really encourage you to go read Proverbs 34 this week. I'm sorry, Psalm 34. Psalm 34. It's a beautiful passage about coming to the Lord as your refuge and worshiping Him as your King. It's a beautiful passage, and He takes just a few verses from Psalm 34 and He quotes it right here. And in here, we find blessings. But even blessings spill out of this verse and this chapter. All the way back to the beginning of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, there's a, a promise of future blessing that is given to us in Jesus Christ. If you go a back at 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 4, it talks about this inheritance that we have in Christ. This blessed inheritance that we have that extends beyond time. And let that settle in. Before Christ, the only inheritance that we had was hell and death. Eternally. That was our inheritance. And Jesus on the cross takes that inheritance through his death, bearing our sins on the cross, and then he gives us the inheritance of heaven and a relation with him for all of eternity. And it describes in 1 Peter this inheritance it's imperishable, which means it will not die, it will not fade. It is a living hope. It's also undefiled, it will never spoil or rot, it's unfading. It's never going to lose its sheen or its shine. This is one of the blessings that we receive as we trust in Jesus Christ. We have a future blessing. But then, going back to chapter 3, we find a, a present blessing in Jesus. It says in verse 10, Whoever desires to love his life and to see good days. God desires for Believers to have that. That we would genuinely love the life that he has given us. And that as we live this life, that we would see good days. Now this blessing of of present life does not mean we have a life free from suffering. We're going to get to that next week and actually all the way through chapter 5. It's actually going to tell us that in this life we should expect suffering We should expect pain, but we have this joy that's based on Jesus and not our circumstances. And so even though our circumstances can have suffering and pain and difficulty, we have a joy that is deep, a joy that gives us a good life, even if it's hard. And this is what God is offering us who live out these qualities and these activities from our salvation that we have in Jesus. There's also one last blessing as we close. It's the eternal blessing. It's eternal blessing. A blessing that starts right now and that goes on forever and ever and ever. You find that in verse 12. And it's this blessing of intimacy with the God of all creation. Look at verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are on the Righteous. His ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. They're personifying God. His eyes are on us. If you know Christ, Jesus sees you. Some of you are wondering, does God see me? Yes. It's saying right here that God sees you because you are righteous in Jesus. His ears are open to your prayers. He doesn't just see us. He listens to us. This is a blessing of personal relationship with Christ. It's a language of intimacy. Know that God sees you and knows you. And it should, in some sense, bring fear into our hearts. Because it tells us right here that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who do evil. That when we sin, God sees it. He sees it all. He knows it all. He sees it, and he's against those who do evil. So when we sin and we transgress and we rebel against the God of all creation, he is a holy God and a just God, and so wrath comes down on that, and it will come down on either us or it will come down on Jesus Christ. It will. And it's saying right here that God is a just God. And so there should be a sense of holy fear that comes in our heart. But Christ, but Christ gives us this hope. And the way that we find this relationship with him, the way that we get this eternal blessing, we actually find in verse 11. It says, if you want this good life, if you want to love your life, then let him seek peace and pursue it. And that word for seeking peace right there is an investigative term. Now that you and I would be like Sherlock Holmes searching out in our life this way of peace. And this way of peace only comes through the Prince of Peace. The one who made peace for us as he died on the cross for our sins. The one that made us right before the Lord to have a relationship with him. Oh, this is how we seek peace. We seek Christ. Let's do that today. Bow your heads with me. Should you close your eyes, wherever you are, wherever you're listening, whether it's in this room or online, I want to ask you if you have this eternal blessing of Jesus with you. I even thought and prayed this week. I wish that I could interact with each one of you um, personally, one-on-one, and ask you, do you know if you died today that you would have this eternal life in God? Do you know that you have taken time to put your trust and your faith in Jesus to save you from your sin and to bring you into this perfect Peaceful relationship with God. Has He changed your heart in that way? If the answer to that question it is a resounding no, then I invite you right now to pray. Would you pray saying, God, would you give me that eternal relationship? Confess my sins, the evil of my heart that you already see and you know. And I believe that you died on the cross for those things. Put my faith in Jesus today. The one that can save you from your sin and give you the blessing of eternal and abundant life. If you pray something like that to God, he will hear and he will save. The lost will be found. But at the same time, Lord, I want to pray now that the saved would be strengthened. Lord, help us who have trusted in you to have wisdom and strength to live out these qualities in our lives. God, would you help us to live out these activities? Because apart from you, we cannot do it. We won't do it. God, give us great discernment on how to be faithful to you and to lovingly follow Christ forever. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Church family, let's stand now. Let's sing to King Jesus.